This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Good morning, everyone, um, and welcome to the fourth of four Eureka Talks um, that's been hosted after the Eureka Prizes this year. Before we start our conversation, um, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands that we're meeting on today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. There is no place in Australia, water, land or air, that has not been known, nurtured or loved by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. It's lovely to welcome you all for this um, very intimate conversation today. Um, I'm Alice Motion. I'm an Associate Professor at the School of Chemistry at the University of Sydney. And it's my great delight to be joined by three fantastic uh, women scientist colleagues um, to discuss a little bit about their research and some other things today. Um, just a little bit of housekeeping to let you know how, how this, uh, this event is going to pan out. We're going to have a discussion for around about 45 minutes. Then we're going to open up um, questions from the audience. And after that, um, you are very welcome. In fact, we would love for you to stay and uh, to, to join us in raising a toast with a complimentary glass of bubbles to celebrate science and to celebrate uh, these three fantastic women who will be speaking with you today. And we're going to actually have our um, glass of bubbles inside the theatre rather than outside in the museum because you may have noticed it's the first day of uh, the school holidays and so the museum is particularly busy um, so we're going to have a bit more of an intimate gathering in here today. Um, this conversation is also being recorded and will be hosted on the Australian Museum's uh, website so you can also um, listen back if you have anything you'd like to listen to again or share with your friends if you are particularly excited by anything you hear today which I'm sure you will be. Um, so we uh, we've now come to the time where I'll int introduce each of our um, guests. Um, you may, I think you're probably aware of the Eureka Prizes, but for those of you who aren't, the Australian Museum has been awarding the Eureka Prizes, I think, since 1990. Um, and these are sort of widely regarded as, as the Oscars of science in Australia. So it's a very exciting day if you are nominated um, or even to get a nomination in, but to become a finalist or to, to win a Eureka Prize is a very special moment in a person's career. And each of our uh, speakers today have been uh, finalists this year or winners, um, and we're going to learn a little bit more about each of them today. So I'll first of all introduce you very briefly to Dr. Stephanie Partridge, who was actually the winner of the Eureka Prize for Emerging Leader in Science, which I think deserves a round of applause. <laughs> Dr. Stephanie Partridge is a Senior Research Fellow and National Heart Foundation Future Leader Fellow at the University of Sydney. Um, and you'll hear a little bit more about Stephanie's research, but um, she harnesses technology and nutrition science to improve youth well-being. I'm sure somebody will answer that if, if we need to. Um, so welcome, Stephanie. Um, our second guest today is Associate Professor Nushin Naziri. Uh, Nishim was a finalist um, in the Macquarie University Eureka Prize for Outstanding Early Career Researcher, which I think also deserves a round of applause. <laughs> so Associate Professor Nishim Nasiri is the head of the Nanotech Laboratory at the School of Engineering in the Faculty of Science and Engineering at Macquarie University. And um, you'll hear a little bit more about Nishim's research, but she has invented the Sunwatch which is a smartphone-connected wearable device um, that alerts people who are wearing it in real time about their UV exposure, which is uh, fancy. I don't know if she's wearing a sunwatch today, but we'll hear about that. And our third um, and final uh, guest today is uh, Associate Professor Kate Quinlan, who was a co-finalist together with her colleague, Professor Merlin Crossley, for the UNSW Eureka Prize for Scientific Research. And again, I think that deserves a round of applause. So Kate, uh, Associate Professor Quinlan, is a Scientia Associate Professor within the School of Biotechnology and Biomolecular Sciences at UNSW Sydney. And some the research that um, she was uh, a co-finalist for it involves um, looking at fetal haemoglobin production. And we're going to hear a little bit more about that from, from her in just a moment. So 
we'll start um, by hearing, I think, from Stephanie. Um, could you tell us, um, in, in a sort of a, a brief summary, because I know that you get up to loads of research, but could you share with, with all of us a little bit about your research? Sure. So my background is in uh, dietetics, uh, and I focus on public health nutrition, and I have a focus on adolescent health. So um, I'm really focused on improving the, the nutrition and well-being of that population. They are often neglected in our um, society and in our healthcare systems. And I'm particularly interested in looking at the digital environment that impacts on their health and well-being. So looking at developing digital health interventions to support them. And then on the flip side, looking at how we can better regulate our digital environment. So particularly around things like meal delivery apps. Um, but I guess underpinning all of that, I really want to bring a, an adolescent rights approach to work that I do so that they're involved in everything that I do and they have input and um, are part of the whole scientific uh, process with me. And Stephanie, why, you know, why did you pick this area of research? What compelled you to, to work in nutrition and particularly to collaborate with adolescents in this way? Yeah, I guess during my dietetics training, um, it was very much focused at the time on becoming a clinical dietitian and working in a hospital. That's a very important job, but it's a very one-on-one -on -one level job. Um, and then I did a placement where I was in Broken Hill in New South Wales, and I got to work on sort of a more population level, working with different schools in the area. And I just felt like I really enjoyed that, and I felt like I was making uh, more of an impact, and I felt like I had more skill set maybe in that area. And that's what sort of got me into that space. And I really enjoyed prevention. And then obviously working on, on my PhD in young adults, I noticed that adolescents, they're often... Uh, forgotten um, within science because they're you know often seen as a challenging population to work with uh, there's different difficulties around ethics and different things like that but I you know really got into that population and I've been so happy because they're so wonderful to work with so enthusiastic and gives me so much optimism that's fantastic so thanks Stephanie so Michelle, the same questions for you could you share a brief summary of, of your research yeah sure so uh, my background is I'm a materials engineer but for my PhD, I decided to work in nanomaterials, specifically on, on nanosensors. Uh, so what is uh, nanotechnology or nanomaterials is actually uh, when you have the possibility of working on different type of materials, but in a very, very small scale. So you actually will be able to uh, rearrange, for example, the atoms inside a material or the molecules inside a, a material or the structure of any, any object that we have, then you will be called a nanotechnologist, especially if the, of, if the concept that you're working on or the material you're working on could be used in any type of technology then uh, uh, you will be called a nanotechnologist. And uh, what the nanotechnology does is that uh, we can redesign uh, different materials that they actually don't usually exist in the normal environment. For example, you can, so each material has its own limitation. Uh, so you cannot have all the like uh, good properties coming from one material, but if you have the power to kind of manipulate the material structure in the atomic scale or in the nano scale, then you might be able to even create something that it actually doesn't exist. So then you will be able to combine different properties, the good properties that you want from the from the one material. And so how do the nanomaterials in the Sunwatch work? Could you tell us a little bit more about sure. this invention and how it's related to nanoscience? So the project, uh, so I can give you a little bit of background about why I chose uh, to work on this uh, uh, UV sensing uh, device. So when I came to Australia, I came to Australia almost 11 years ago. And I was, a, again, as I said, I was a materials engineer. So I'm from Iran. It was my first time coming to, to this side of the planet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm sitting in a, in a flight coming to Australia. It's a 15 hours flight uh, from Dubai to, uh, to Sydney. And there was a gentleman sitting next to me, and he didn't, uh, he was like watching all these movies that the Emirate flight offer you, so it's awesome. And five minutes before landing into Sydney, he just decided to, to talk to me. Uh, so he just told me, oh yeah, welcome home. 
And then that's how the conversation started. I said, I'm not coming home, I'm coming here to do the PhD. Then he asked me, what is my PhD about? Uh, back then, I was supposed to work on a particular alloy, magnesium alloy, to be used in the body of the car to reduce the weight of car because of the carbon emission. And think about it, 10 years ago, someone doing a project in carbon, reducing carbon emission, it was really cool. So I was really proud of that project. But then she told me, he told me that, um, are you sure you're coming to the right country? Uh, I said, yeah, why? And then he said, because we're not car manufacturing country here. Uh, so I'm trying to keep my confidence. And I said, <laughs> I said, it's okay, it doesn't matter. I'm working on a project which will benefit the entire globe. And then he said, who's paying your scholarship? I said, Australian government. And then he said, oh, no, no, that's my taxpayer's money. I mean, you're using my taxpayer's money on, on a project that's, that is going, no, 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 you have to do it on a project that, impact this country. I'm very grateful of that guy. I'm really grateful because that's true. I mean, I was very grateful of the scholarship. I couldn't come here without that scholarship. So I came to Sydney, go back to Canberra because I did my PhD at ANU. And I was searching what is the main problem Australian society is facing. We have a lot of problems here, but one of the problems was we are, it has a beautiful landscape here and we get exposed to a very high level of UV regardless of where we live in Australia. Even in winter, at least half of the Australia is exposed to either extreme or high level of UV. And to me, as an engineer, it was a very simple uh, solution for that. So what if we have a device that tells us how much UV is absorbed by our skin? And what if, if the device is smart enough to even send us a text message if the level of UV is above the limit? So that's how I started working on a tiny sensor, uh, but it's not doable if you're not working in the nanotechnology because you cannot make that tiny sensor. You can make it very big and it will give you a signal, but no one is gonna carry it with <laughs> everywhere. In order to make it as a tiny variable device, you should be able to manipulate the structure in a nanoscale to make the sensor super sensitive that even a tiny, like a tip of the needle sensor will give you a very high signal when you're exposed to UV. And that's, it's a very long story, I'm so sorry, but I think <laughs> that's how the entire, like the, you know, a new uh, avenue was open to me. Well, no, thank you for sharing your trajectory. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry that that conversation happened on the plane, but to see the, you know, the positive spin that you put on that. Mm. I'm struck by the fact that to think about that emissions in one part of the world don't impact all of us too, you know, it's a, an interesting thing to consider, but the Sunwatch sounds like a, a very useful piece of technology. Um, and so um, I'd like to ask you too, Kate, could you please share with us all a summary of your research, um, particularly in relation to this Eureka Prize? Of course. So um, I come from a background of molecular biology and genetics. So what we do in this project is we're really interested in sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia, which are two common blood disorders, which are caused by um, mutations that you inherit from your parents. So you, the, these are common mutations that lead to quite debilitating disease. And they, these are mutations in a particular gene that encodes a protein called hemoglobin. And so we have, a, the hemoglobin doesn't, doesn't operate correctly when these mutations exist. So we're really interested in trying to understand this disease and understand potential therapeutics. So it turns out that we have a spare version of hemoglobin that we express when we're a fetus. So after birth, we start expressing the adult version of hemoglobin, which is with the, the type that has the mutations that leads to these diseases. So we've, um, there are people who walk around, walking around now who have beneficial mutations in the fetal hemoglobin gene, which means that the fetal hemoglobin keeps being expressed when people are an adult. And those mutations provide, fix, cure beta thalassemia and sickle cell anemia. So what we tried to do is understand how these beneficial mutations can counteract the deleterious mutations that lead to sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia and how we can give the benefits of those beneficial mutations to the vast majority of people who have sickle cell disease but didn't get one of these beneficial mutations. That's fascinating. So are, all, are both of these diseases, they affect the haemoglobin, so are they affecting 
people's ability to get enough oxygen. Is that exactly. a major issue? Yeah, so they cause a, a type of a severe anemia, mm -hmm. which is an, a reduced ability to carry oxygen in your blood, and there's a lot of different clinical consequences of that. And so I have a question about this. So, of course. You know, um, I was just wondering, you know how we hear sometimes there are people who are fantastic athletes or brilliant yes. cyclists and they have, um, they, they seem, their body seems to do a very good job of mm -hmm. carrying oxygen around yes. their body. Is it possible that some of these people have this mutation and they're carrying both the fetal hemoglobin and the sort of adult hemoglobin? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So I don't think so. So um, people who have this condition where they keep expressing fetal hemoglobin into adulthood are normal and I, there's, I, there's no association with athletic performance in those people. So people who um, are particularly good at, um, so who've trained at altitude, for example, will have more red blood cells mm -hmm. and a higher amount of um, oxygen mm -hmm. cap capability and there are genetic mutations that can predispose you to that, but not these particular ones. Okay, fascinating. And how did you come to work on haemoglobin? What drove you to work on this particular protein? Yeah, I guess it happened a little bit by accident as most research does. So I, um, I, I've always loved genetics and molecular biology and trying to understand things. I love to, to understand things and pick at things and and the deeper you understand things, the more you realise we don't know and the more you realise there is to discover. So I think um, that's sort of how, why, why this field, but why this project specifically? I guess it was just a really interesting paradigm. So it's, you've got a, some bad mutations but some good mutations that can make up for the bad mutations. And when we're trying to think about doing gene therapy in people, which is where this, this type of research has, has gone, the idea that we know because people have these beneficial mutations naturally walking around that, they, that making these changes in people doesn't have deleterious effects. So I really like the fact that sort of we've got proof of principle, walking, walking models um, showing that if we were able to introduce these changes into people with sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia, we know it would work um, and we know that there wouldn't be deleterious effects. So it's a particularly exciting example, I think, of how we can get gene therapy into the clinic to, to help these people. Very exciting, I agree. Um, so we've got you know, three uh, uh, women scientists here who have achieved a great deal, even though they're still relatively early or even just, just about mid in their career <laughs> now in the way that we express this in, in, in Australia. Um, I was wondering if each of you would be happy to share with us um, any or some of the challenges that you've had to overcome either in your research or personally in order to be where you are today? And I might start with Stephanie, if that's okay. Yeah. Oh, I guess there's so many challenges, I guess, that you face as a scientist on a daily basis. But I guess the biggest one for me is just being the applying for funding and, and that's funding to keep your salary as well and obviously this comes up every so many years that you then reapply so for, for me personally I found that a, a really big challenge and and obviously as I move into sort of the later in my life like with with friends like you know my husband and buying a house and things like that it's like the the insecure employment I guess has been a big challenge and something that I've been um yeah like that that keeps on my mind yeah, I think that's really tricky too because um, some of you may be scientists, some of you may have worked in fields where you've had to move around a lot, but it's very hard to plan, isn't it, if you don't know exactly how long you have for a project. Mm -hmm. And the other issue that I found um, earlier on is that um, quite rightly, in lots of ways, it's very difficult to um, recruit a PhD student if your contract doesn't last at least as long as the PhD should take. So until you have that permanency or at least a bit of a longer contract, you can also, um, you, it's not only sort of challenging for your own research, but you're not able to welcome in the next generation to sort of work with you. Yeah, I've definitely found that to be a challenge. But I guess on the flip side as well, I've had the opportunity to move around and work with a lot of different people, which I think has been really exciting. And I've met so many new collaborators and um, different kinds of people. And I've met some now exceptional mentors. So I guess it, it does have some, some positives as well, which I've really benefited from as well. Yeah. And I think you can see, I think you can hear from the answers today. I'm definitely picking up on this. I think this idea of sort of when something becomes a challenge, almost sort of 
thinking about how you can make that into a positive is a, is a little bit what we try and do in, in research and, and try and bounce, bounce off that. Mishin, what about you? Are there any particular challenges you've had to overcome? Sure. I think on a personal level, um, uh, initially when I came to Australia, language barrier was a very big challenge here um, because, um, of course, we learn English before coming to Australia, but the level of uh, English we learn over there here is not even in the survival <laughs> level. Uh, so it was a big challenge because you lose your confidence, you lose your, you even have to kind of, um, you know, uh, lose your personality sometimes because you kind of avoid going to different conferences, different seminars, even different events, even after hours events, like a celebration, because you find yourself not being able to have a very normal routine conversation with people. Uh, but of course, I think that is a very initial challenge for someone like me who started speaking English 10 years ago for the first time. Uh, but I think for as a for for uh, on a bigger picture, uh, one of the main challenge we have is lack of uh, female uh, women engineers uh, at this, uh, in the engineering field. So when you are, um, for example, especially when you are a very young uh, academic or a young researcher uh, at the school of engineering or in engineering fields, you kind of. Uh, every single day of your life you are a minority over there mm -hmm. so you'll be excluded uh, sometimes deliberately sometimes it's just like you know uh, it's kind of a habit uh, so you are not part of that club uh, so if you're not part of a club then you lose a lot of opportunities that you should should have been given as a, as a human being but it's just because it's not enough of you or it's not enough of let's say, role models that, or uh, collaborators mm -hmm. who are willing to collaborate with you. I think that is a, still a challenge uh, for, for many women engineers uh, uh, in, in all around the world. I mm -hmm. think this is, not, this is not only in Australia. Thanks, Nishim. We might come back and touch on that point a little bit more. But for now, I'd like to ask uh, Kate, what about, what about for you? What have been some particular challenges you've had to overcome? Yeah, so... Reflecting back to Stephanie's comments, I think funding and job insecurity is a really challenging part of a career as a scientist, and that's not unique to the sciences, but um, trying to plan for something that's for, for the future, trying to plan for a project you want to do in five years, a project you want to do in 10 years, if you don't know if you have a job next year, um, is, is quite challenging. So that's that was certainly a challenge. I guess... More fundamentally, one of the challenges of being a scientist, I think, is that you constantly are living outside your comfort zone. You never feel, I never feel like an expert because whenever you discover something, you discover how much you don't know and then you discover how much you then have to, to learn and the minute you feel like you're becoming an expert in something, the project takes a twist and you're like, okay, I don't even know what that cell type is. I'm going to have to learn a whole lot about that cell type and find some collaborators and, and read and learn and, and go to conferences and talk to people until I understand this thing. And then it shifts again. And so that coupled with, um, so in science, not only are we often wrong, so we're often out of our comfort zone, we're often not successful. So we apply for grants all the time in success rates that are between 10 and 20%. So that means 80 to 90% of the applications are not successful on average. And we, you know, we apply for awards and we apply for promotions and we apply for things and are often told no. And I guess so having that living within never feeling like an expert plus constantly being told no it's quite a you have to sort of develop a system that works for you to navigate that so that you are able to continue to make discoveries and push things forward and guide your team and and yeah I think that's, that I think <laughs> I, I, I share a lot of, of those thoughts and I saw nods from the other panelists I think that's something to do with working in STEM that um to sort of to work in research and to 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 maintain some happiness and mm. optimism I, I found myself getting very um, excited about very small things because you have to celebrate every success, really. Um, I wondered too, Kate, you know, you mentioned uh, this idea of being sort of a bit uncomfortable with 
with not knowing everything. How does this tie into um, ideas like imposter syndrome? Yes. So where people feel like, um, am I going to Am I going to be found out tomorrow as, as not being an expert in this area? And how do you kind of balance that with being comfortable with not knowing everything, but also keeping enough confidence that you are the right person in the right place at the right time to lead your projects? Yeah, I think imposter syndrome is very common in scientists, particularly perhaps female scientists. So um, absolutely feeling like perhaps someone's made a huge mistake and they'll one day wake up and go, oh, well, we do you know cross you out that you shouldn't have been here in the first place um I think over time you get enough wins on the board to sort of feel like actually really I I do belong here I am supposed to be here this is the thing that I was meant to do and so that helps to to buffer that mm -hmm. um I see a lot with my students and staff in my lab many of them sort of come in and go I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm terrible at this I don't think I should be here I'm just waiting for you to figure it out and um and so to guess to to be a little bit vulnerable with them and to say I'm pretty sure everyone feels that way there's certainly days when I feel that way and to be able to normalize that and to say that it's okay to feel that way because it is really part of what we do you you can't get too comfortable you're just never going to be an expert. If you, if, you, if you feel like you know everything, you're probably wrong yeah. rather than... Yeah. And you're maybe not doing research. Exactly. That's what we're trying to find yeah. out things we don't exactly. know. Exactly. Um, so maybe just sort of building on this point and some things that Nushin mentioned too, um, your three women in science. Um, I think Australia and around the world were making a lot of progress in terms of um, increasing representation of women and gender minorities in STEM. Um, I know there's some very optimistic news, particularly from school-age scientists. Um, it's, we're almost at parity um, for uh, students studying uh, science or STEM at year 12. Um, there's increasing numbers of, of women who are coming to do science at university. But there's still, um, you know, really big challenges, particularly in certain areas. Nishini mentioned engineering. Um, there was a stat from a Sydney Morning Herald article that, that shared that uh, the proportion of women in STEM qualified occupations has, um, was 15% was in 2022. Um, and it's gone up from 10%, so by 5% in the last two decades. And there is still on average, um, women in STEM are still on average paid um, over $27,000 a year uh, less than, than men in sort of equivalent positions. So my question for each of you is, um, what do we need to do to make science careers more inclusive, more welcoming of women, of uh, gender minorities, of other people who've been underrepresented or historically excluded from science? What action can we take? And Nushin, I might come to you first on this one. Sure. I think, I think we have to be very active in different areas. So it is not only one area which is causing this lack of representation of uh, women, for example, in, in STEM, particularly in engineering. For example, I think initially there are a lot of uh, studies uh, done that, uh, that and kids uh, at the age of six, they kind of decide. Uh, whether they are good enough for the for the hands-on skills or whether they are very good enough, for example, in uh, reading the stories or, or books. Uh, so it is as early as a six-year-old kid uh, that we have to pay attention to, to that kind of population over there because um, sometimes we start encouraging them to do STEM and we start encouraging them to do engineering very, very late. And uh, by then, I think uh, it's much harder to even change their, their perspective and make them excited. Uh, again, another story I can tell you regarding that, when I, uh, when I have a brother who is only two years younger than me. Uh, so um, don't get me wrong, in Middle East we have tons of problems. I'm not saying that we're perfect over there. That's why I'm here. But uh, so one of the good things over there is that when, when, for example, me and brother, we go to the, uh, when we were a kid and we go to the toy store to buy a toy, and there was no uh, kind of a distinction between this is a girl's toy and this is a boy's toy. When I came to Australia, I was invited for 
for a party, for a birthday party of a three-year-old kid. I went to a toy store to buy a toy, and I asked the salesman that I want a toy for a three-year-old kid. And it was the first time in my life someone asked me, is it a boy or is it a girl? And I was like, doesn't matter, it's a kid. And then he guided me to, if it's a boy, go to the blue eye, and if it's a girl, go to the pink eye. So I think that is a fundamental, like we're not, we don't need to tell them every day, hey, you need to do engineering or you need to do STEM. The way that everything is designed, the shirts, the books they read, teaching girls to be pretty and princess and teaching boys to be smart and, and you know, uh, um, innovative. So I think we can start from very, very age. Then if we do that and then we introduce them, I'm not saying that every girl needs to go to STEM, every girl needs to do engineering, but we have to let them know what is, for example, engineering. When they come to university, the ones who survived these 18 years of education and they still decide to come to university, we've done a survey. I have a PhD student. She's working on the, the thesis is on the experience of women engineers in the engineering education. So we interview a lot of students. They always had someone to encourage them so hard that even all these kind of all of this discouragement that they face every day, they still manage to come to university. So I think the problem, one of the problem is that they don't really know what is engineering, for example, in my field, and what is STEM, what is the future, what they will become, all the idea they have is that engineering is probably the workplace is a very dirty workplace and it might not be very suitable, comfortable, not very, you know, safe for women. But that is not true. We know that that is not true, but we, I think we're still failing in communicating it properly and then show them, like opening the door to them and show them and then they can choose. And if they still choose to not to come to STEM, I think that is absolutely fine. But yeah, that is a fundamental part. But I think, of course, there is a lot of other uh, actions that we can do in the workplace to make the workplace, a, uh, you know, more uh, welcoming towards women who survived and they still <laughs> Because, look, I, I can tell you the numbers, as I said, because we're doing the survey. The number of students who come to engineering in day one is still very low, like 10%, 15%, if you're very lucky. And then the, by the time they graduate, we don't have that 15% graduation in women engineering. So at least 30% of them, they just drop, they just drop out of university. And then if you also consider people who graduate, how many of them continue to the next level? How many of them, they actually find a job in a relevant field and they still can survive? So I think, yeah, I think this is something that needs to be done in every different stage to tackle a lot of problems that discourage women to do STEM and also uh, make them to drop out. Uh, so in this pipeline, we have a lot of, you know, uh, yeah, uh, ex they, they just they just take the exit door because you know there is just much there is just a certain level that you can handle, and after that, you know, you might just say, okay, no, no, it's not worth it. And then all those voices that you've heard before that they've told you that engineering is not for women in that particular moment, you get to the point that they say, you know what, they were right. Mm. Yeah, I should have. I should have been here. Uh, this this was a wrong call at the first place. Yeah, yeah. I think it's so interesting for engineering too because we, what we end up with um, is a world that's sort of engineered for a, a sort of a fixed type of person. I mean, I saw that. I think it's. I think it was only this week that the first sort of woman. Um, crash test dummy has been exactly. has been used to to explore and understand the impacts on. On, on women in, in crashes um, because women have been much more vulnerable to injury because the crash test dummies have been designed around a particular uh, male, um, sort of a typical um, male sort of uh, body structure. Correct. So the thing is, of course, we wanted to provide everyone with the opportunity to choose their career. And if they're not introduced to engineering, I, I believe that that is not a fair, you know, uh, 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 fair word, uh, everyone should be given the opportunity to know what are the options and choose. But from the other side, as Alice mentioned, 
we really need them. We really need a diverse people team around the table, especially in engineering, because engineers design everything, like everything. Like the seats, the chair, the, 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 the chair you're sitting, this building, all these lamps, all the phones we're using, all the variable device, everything. Like you go to the kitchen, your kitchen, everything is designed by engineers. You drove to come here, you take a train, you take the bus, everything. And now imagine that people who are sitting around the table and they design that product, any product, they never consider 50% of the population when they design it. I always give, like the, the, the best example I think is one on Alex gave. So, uh, um, Women and, and, and children, they have 47% higher chance of being injured in a car accident and 17% higher chance of being killed in a car accident. Not because we are fragile, no, just because the seat belt, the design of a seat, the gap between the seat and the pedal, everything, and, and also the airbag. The airbag does not simply work if there is an accident and it's my body is sitting behind the wheel, you know, and the, and the, and the seatbelt is not actually working properly because it's not tested based on my height and it's not tested based on my weight. So we are, so people are being killed because we don't have a diverse team around the table. So there are a lot of problems. So one, one simple problem is you go to a shopping center or airport and then you go to the bathroom and you want to wash, wash your hand and then Sometimes it depends what color of skin you have. So you put your hand and there's a sensor over there to see, to detect whether, whether your hand is there. They never test it on a dark skin people. So then they put their hand and the water doesn't work. And they just put their hand and the water doesn't work. Because when they test the sensor, when they design the sensor, there was no black person sitting around the table. That's how they fail. So when they designed this watch of me, I always wear this. I could wear my sun watch, but I think this is more useful for me to, to deliver my message. This is not sun watch, this is Samsung watch. There is a sensor at the back, which is supposed to feel my skin and then unlock my watch when I'm wearing it. So if I take it out and I put it here, it should be locked automatically. And if I'm wearing it, it should be unlocked. But because this is not designed for my very thin wrist, it fails to do that. And every time I need it, I have to just say, unlock the watch, please. <laughs> because it doesn't do that properly. I mean, right now, yes, they changed the design and there are some new watch that you can, I mean, it's designed for women's body. But when I bought this one long time ago, it was the only option available. And then people keep reporting that, but the unlock option doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, it works, but it doesn't work on, on us because it's never tested on us. Thanks, Nishin. Well, I think we're all looking forward to your watch store opening up <laughs> and, and maybe also a children's toy store in the future too. Um, Kate, what about you? Um, how, how do you think we could make STEM a, a, a better, more inclusive place for, for, well, for women, for gender minorities, for, for people who are underrepresented? Yeah, so it's a hard act to follow. <laughs> um, so I guess in biology, it's a little bit different because at the university level, at the undergraduate level and at the postgraduate level, we have equivalent numbers of women and men, as using one example of a minority. Um, that, that doesn't really exist. It's really as people progress in their careers that we see that, that really big drop-off with there being a lot more men in senior positions and a lot fewer women and people of other minority groups in those senior positions. So I guess the the... the the place to intervene is possibly slightly different for biologists than, than engineers. Um, so I guess the way I've sort of managed to, to continue and thrive is been through extremely powerful mentorship and support. So having fantastic both men and women mentors who've seen me for my abilities and for my what I bring to the table and my, my mind and my, you know, the things I can do rather than seeing me because for my gender or, or any other um, feature. And I think, so personally, I work really hard to recognise my own bias and to provide the sort of mentorship I had that helped me to, to survive and thrive to the people around me. So people within my school, people within my team, people within my, my network. But of course that's that's limited because there's, there's a limit to, to who you know and to how many people you can support. I think 
you can't be what you can't see is is a really powerful idea that if you if you've never seen someone in a senior leadership position that you can sort of identify with that doesn't look like a pathway that's open to you um, so I think there's there's a responsibility of us apart from everything else we're responsible for but to try to to show that that is a pathway to tell people they can do it if they want to. Not everybody wants to, not everybody has to, but that that door should be open for people yeah. if they want to. No, I agree. I agree completely, but it's, I'm sort of struck by the fact that both of you have said this, you know, I think sometimes we, we, we get so excited about STEM, we can get a little bit evangelical. And really, from my perspective, science is extremely important, but it's no more important than music or art or any other aspect of, uh, of, of research or culture but it's that idea that people have possibilities open to them and they can make an informed choice about what they would like to do what about you Stephanie it's interesting I work in a field as well which is quite more female dominated I guess in particularly in public health and nutrition um, but I guess for me, when I grew up, I didn't, I guess this, I never knew this career path existed. I know there's a lot more outreach and a lot more exciting opportunities now for high school students, but I just never, you know, knew really anyone that was at university, anyone that worked at university. So I guess with the work that I do, I get, I now have the opportunity to work with high school students who inform my work. And through that work, I can then um, provide mentorship, provide leadership training, and hopefully open up their I guess maybe expose them a little bit more to different careers and pathways um, in different STEM areas. I know some have been applying for engineering. I've been writing some recommendation letters <laughs> from my youth advisory group for, for early entry into university. Um, yeah, so having those opportunities and um, making sure that the young people that I work with come from different diverse backgrounds has been a huge priority for me. Um, and recently I had a young, um, a young boy, he, he was from uh, the middle of New South Wales, and he said in his community it's usually, you know, a particular type of it's more homogenous maybe than in a city but in this opportunity he had the the opportunity to hear from a lot more different people and a lot more different young people and he said how valuable that was for him uh, and I, for me I was like oh this is really important and I feel like I'm doing something you know really worthwhile here so I think creating an opportunity for young people to come in and sort of be exposed to the work that I do because I guess it isn't that visible not being you know not being in a lab and not being you know as an engineer it's not a lot it's a lot harder to describe to people so and inviting young people in then they can see it uh, and then if that's what they want to do but it gives them another you know opens up a lot more possibilities and sort of opens up this university world I guess which can be a bit of a, a black box to people um, so I feel like that's really important to sort of to make it accessible as possible. Thank you. So um, I have a couple more questions before we're going to open things up to the audience so if, if you have a question for the panel and um, you know start thinking about that and we'll come to you in a moment but um each of you are working at, at the cutting edge of, of your area of, of research. And it strikes me, you know, that your research is all, all of your uh, different areas of research um, impact on public health in different ways. And there is also, um, like with every area of research pretty much, some areas of sort of controversy or perhaps some ethical dilemmas that each of you face. So, um, Stephanie, I know that you're working with young people around nutrition, which requires a great de deal of sensitivity. Um, Mission, you know, you are uh, you're amongst uh, some of your research. You're developing sensors. They're, they're measuring things. You know, do we have consent about what we're surveilling and what we're measuring? And of course, Kate, in some of your work, um, you're using CRISPR, or gene editing technology, which can change, um, you know, the genetic information people or plants in your case for people how do each of you sort of think about the ethical dimensions of your research and even though I know each of you are working you know really ethically about what that technology or what that research could be used for if it wasn't um, if it was in the wrong hands mm. and how do you think about communicating that to the public um, particularly where you know we have some creeping mistrust in science or people who might be cynical or skeptical or worried about what these new areas of research or technology um, might you know might lead to. Kate might start with you. Um. Yeah so I, as, as you identified we we the types of tools we use in the lab we edit genes and that is being done in people and it can be done in you know plants and animals and and it's a very powerful technology, but of course there are potential downsides to that technology. So I guess 
working with um, gene editing as we do in, in people, we don't do that, those experiments, but that's absolutely what our work is being used for. I feel that the type of gene editing we do and the type of gene editing that, that is, is used is only editing the cells of a person's body that they don't pass on to the next generation. So we edit what's called the somatic cells. So all the cells in your body can be edited, but not the germline, which are your sperm and eggs that you pass on to the next generation. So I guess for me, consent is very direct. Like the, the person who consents to have their their, their genes edited is able to make that choice and there aren't consequences beyond that person for other people in the future, which I feel that contains the problem to some extent. And the types of gene editing we do are being used in people who are very, very unwell. So the benefits for those people, I think, greatly outweigh the risks, and they, but they are able to make those decisions with their clinical team as to whether that is the right decision for them. So I guess... I feel somewhat comfortable with what we do and the implications, direct implications of our work. But I guess everybody working in gene editing has some discomfort about how that type of technology could be extended. So to, you know, considering germline modifications in, in the future, so ones that could be passed to future generations, the idea of sort of designer babies, all these things make me and many of my colleagues deeply uncomfortable. And I guess having really strong regulation about how these types of technologies can be used is really important. And as you said, working at the cutting edge, sometimes it can be difficult for the regulation to keep up. So I think scientists tend to be incredibly responsible about how these types of technologies are used. I don't know if that makes anybody feel any better, but that's certainly my experience. And I guess then regulation needs to, to be in place to make sure that what the types of ways we do use these technologies are consistent with what the public feels comfortable with and where and where things are acceptable. Thanks, Kate. What about for you, Stephanie, working with, with young people, adolescents and nutrition? Yeah, so we develop a lot of digital health interventions for young, uh, with young people um, to improve their uh, physical and mental well-being. So in order to, to make that as, I guess, um, as effective as possible, we work with young people through every step of the process, through designing all of the content that goes in that, making sure it's aligned with national guidelines as well as, um, you know, behavioural theories to help young people uh, hopefully change their behaviours. Um, but they're involved in every step. And I think in, in one of the last projects that we've done, um, they've also been involved in the ethical um, application process where we put that through uh, our university ethics application process. They wrote a statement, they reviewed the whole, the whole process, uh, and so their voice and their, their um, you know, they're incorporated in all of that. And I think we've seen a lot of success with doing that. Um, we're using also sensors to capture data, which we post out to young people, and we're getting such a high success rate um, of, of all of that data coming back to us as we've built a lot of trust, I think, in that whole process. Um, so we've been able to run this uh, randomised control trial where we're testing uh, two different types of interventions, um, and we're getting hopefully robust data coming back. Uh, and then young people will also be involved in all of the interpretation of the data and as well as the dissemination. Um, yeah, so just making sure that yeah, they're an equal partner in our journey as we do the science. Very interesting. And Nishin, what about for you with these new sensing technologies that can be very small and hard to spot but can surveil uh, pretty much everything? Yeah, I think, I think yeah, this data privacy is really a big um, um, topic in the uh, sensing field. I think uh, it really depends on what type of sensors we're talking about. Like in, in my lab, we're working on a wide range of uh, applications. Some of them, there's very minimum concern about data privacy. For example, if the sensor is to detect the air quality, you know, uh, or if to detect any kind of uh, hazardous gas in the laboratory. So in that case, I think we're not really concerned about that. But in particularly when the sensor has a healthcare application, uh, uh, we actually take this matter into consideration. Uh, how we do that, again, it depends on what type of data the sensor is collecting. In terms of SunWatch, it is a less concern because, again, the data is not collected from human body. The data is collected from the environment, but of course, it is collected based on the, the end user's location. Uh, in that case, we don't really ask any, any information from the end user. Uh, we might, in, because it depends on 
which version of Sunwatch mm. we're using. But in the version that we wanted to implement the impact of skin type, yes, we asked the end user to let us know what type of skin type they have. And then the app in the Sunwatch is calibrated based on the skin type. But again, there is no, it's, it's beyond the identification. There is no if personal information about, about the end user. But I do acknowledge that that's not the case for every sensor. So for some of the sensors which the data is collected from the human body, like for example, we have some breath analysis sensors that they can analyze human breath and pick up some elements in human breath and tells you, for example, if there is any abnormality in human body or not. Um, or other type of sensors, you can wear them for as a, as a contact lens for analyzing tear, as a tattoo for analyzing uh, sweat or analyzing saliva. These are particularly detecting, collecting data from the end user. So then I think in that case, there are other factors need to be considered. For example, only collect the data which is absolutely necessary. Uh, not just because we're capable of collecting data. <laughs> yeah. So we collect every data we want. And then how long you want to keep the data, who has access to the data. And of course, um, uh, after a period of time, when that data is not needed anymore, then how are you going to do the data retention, for example, uh, get rid of the data if it's not necessary. So I think all of these, there, there is, at university at least, there is a very, very strict policy every Every uh, experiment that you want to run, any new project you want to do, and then it has some level of like a human interaction involved, you have to submit an ethics approval. And they take it very, very seriously. So there's a committee every month at the university sitting reviewing this, and then you have to uh, you know, follow the rules uh, uh, coming out of that mm -hmm. meeting. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's really interesting, and I think interesting to have conversations about even data where um, where, where you're not collecting data, but what do you, um, what's the responsibility of a researcher to help a person to make a decision based on the data they're getting from their watch? I saw a lot of people um, during the Women's World Cup who are getting notifications from their watches that the decibels were too loud in the crowd from everybody cheering and, you know, short of leaving the game before you know who's won, there's not much you can do within that situation, but it's fascinating the amount of information that can be collected by wearables, clothing, devices, and how quickly things have changed, I think. Um, I think now we'll have some time for some questions from the audience. And we don't have a microphone today, so what I'm going to do is I will invite anybody who wants to ask a question to go for it, and then I will try to my best to reframe your question so that everybody can hear. Did, did anyone have a question from the audience? We've got one on the front row from the person on the front row. Would you like to go? Okay, so I'll, I'll repeat that one. So the question from the person at the front was, did all of our panel um, start off, uh, uh, did they always want to have a, a career in STEM? Um, or, you know, what made you want to have a career in STEM? I hope I've captured that okay. Um, um, Stephanie's going to go. Uh, I loved science in high school, and I don't know why I didn't pick a science degree for my... I started doing architecture, which was, seemed a bit random. I don't know why I did it at the time. Um, but then I did it for a year, and I, I was like, what am I doing? Um, I, I, I love science. And then I um, you know, found my way to a Bachelor of Science. Um, but I didn't anticipate being in a career of research. I never knew this pathway existed. I assumed I would end up working in a hospital or working for a local government. Um, but I sort of fell into a sort of a research um, option after that. I'm so happy with the pathway that I found. Um, yeah, and it's been, I've loved it so far. Yeah, I think for me, yeah, that was an obvious choice because um, as a kid, this is a story as my mom always tell me, as a kid, when I receive any toy, that toy never lasted for more than one hour because especially if it does <laughs> something and I wanted to know that how it does it, so then I would kind of tear it apart and then see what is inside the toy. <laughs> and then it wasn't working anymore, but my mom says that you were, you were quite happy because now you know that how... For example, this toy was doing this uh, thing. Uh, when I when I went to the high school back in Iran, in second year of high school, you have to choose either you want to do uh, biology, 
uh, or you want to do art. So they have four options in the high school. You can change it later, but it's better to, yeah, it might be more difficult to change it. So biology, art, language, uh, humanities, humanities studies, and engineering. Uh, I, select, I, I went to biology class once, and then they showed me a very, very painful image of uh, how they do these biology tests on a, on a frog. So they had the frog there. It wasn't a real frog. I just watched the video, and that's it. That was it. I'm a very, very animal lover. So that was the end of the story for me. <laughs> I said, no, biology is not for me. And then I, I, I was very good in physics. Uh, I, was really, I wasn't very good in math, but uh, my physics was really good. And I think that's how I kind of, you know, accidentally decided to probably engineering is the, is the thing for me. And I think that was the right call. But did I choose it very kind of consciously and also very, I, did I study and I actually uh, did a questionnaire to make sure that uh, engineering is the right call? No, I think it just happened. Yeah, but I'm happy that it happened. Yeah, and I guess for me, I, I always loved science. So I considered doing science at university. It seemed like the next obvious step. Um, but I really wanted to do environmental science. Um, I thought that was, that was the thing for me. So in my first few years of university, I did a lot more of the environmental science subjects, but then discovered the molecular biology and the genetics. And I was just like, oh, but that's so cool. So I think just having always followed the thing that I thought was really interesting and you know, being able to do that and fortunate enough to be able to do that has kind of led me to where I am, not really with a great plan at the start, but just continuing following what I enjoy. And then, yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> it's great that you're on there too, a person here. Can I start by saying I was a, a finalist <laughs> at the Eureka? <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> there are others here as well. Are there other finalists maybe? Well, I'll just tell you, um, 26 years ago, my late husband realised there were only five Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander engineers, qualified engineers in Australia, and he started a program to bring teenagers, Aboriginal teenagers from all over the country to Sydney University um, to show them engineering and let them meet young engineers, and we're still going. Yes. And, um, and I, I think we've got about 86 graduate engineers now, and that we know of, many we don't know of, because they don't always let us know. But my question is for Kate, <laughs> and it's nothing to do with engineering. Um, I'm wondering how many of us are, are walking around with the good mutation, mm. and, um, mm. and do, you, um, do you need to know, let me say a bank of people who are walking around with that good mutation, and do you need, to, need us to help the people who have yeah, I'm just going to reframe that for the for the recording and also for the audience. Thank you so much. Congratulations, Eureka finalist in the house. Um, so, a uh, question for Kate. Uh, person in the audience would love to know um, how do we know how many of us are walking around with the um, inverted commas good mutation from our fetal hemoglobin, and would it be you know is it useful to know this? And do you sort of need to have a bank of, of knowing who has this so that people with this positive mutation can help people who, who don't have this favourable mutation? Great. Yeah, great question. So these mutations are very rare. And the only reason we tend to know people have these beneficial mutations is because there's a family history of sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia or beta thalassemia. So, you know, parents will have it and then children will have it. And then, then all of a sudden someone won't have it. It won't show any symptoms and they discover that, that there's also they've also been lucky enough to have one of these beneficial mutations. So they are very rare. And the reason we know they're very rare is because there are big studies now where people have sequenced people's genomes. So people will send data off to 23andMe, their, their, their DNA off to 23andMe and other big companies like that. But there's also lots of big studies being done where they collect people's genetic information. And so we know that these are very, very rare. Um, would it be beneficial for us then to know who those people are and to have them in a bank? At this stage, actually, happily, I don't think we need that because we know the, what the mutations are, which is all we really need to be able to study them in the lab. So we've got enough information now that we don't need that. But I guess when, we, when people were first discovering these, these mutations sort of 40 to 50 years ago, absolutely 
those people were, those patients, um, participants were incredibly valuable, but we've kind of now happily, for, for those people, moved beyond that point of, of needing to, to know who they are and to, to have them being, being part of the study because just knowing what the mutation is and that it's beneficial is enough for us now to really start to unpick how and why and how we could give those benefits to somebody else. Thanks so much, Kate. Um, but I think we are over time. We promised all of you bubbles, or at least the opportunity to have a glass of bubbles. Um, I'd just like to say thank you all very much for joining us um, in, as part of this discussion. Welcome you to stay around and to ask uh, questions, continue the conversation, and to join with me in thanking our three fantastic Eureka finalists and winners. Um, thank you very much, Dr. Stephanie Partridge, Associate Professor Nushin Naziri, excuse me, and Associate Professor Kate Quinlan. Thank you so much. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.